This is the Gospel Uprising Podcast, where we explore the revolutionary power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the world by changing us. I am your host and fellow grace-hungry, kingdom-longing sojourner, Ben Johnson. For more gospel-soaked resources designed to help you know, love, and serve the revolutionary King, Jesus Christ, please visit our website, www.gospeluprising.com. Welcome to today's podcast. Uh, We're going to begin today a study in the Gospel of John. And we're going to do that because if ever there was a quintessential book of the Bible that talks about uh, the Gospel and what it is, who Jesus is, what he did, why he came, and how we ought to respond to that, it's the Gospel of John. So today we're going to begin by exploring John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Consider the power of the perfect opening line. In an instant, it can call to memory an entire story or epic, including all the passion fear, or humor included in the story. See if you recognize any of these. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. Marley was dead to begin with. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary. This is George. He lived in Africa. He was a good little monkey and always very curious. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. If you notice, what makes most of these lines so powerful isn't so much the lines themselves. It's the story that follows the opening lines. But when the first familiar line is read, it conjures up everything the story entails. 
Think about how incredibly true that is for our passage for today. What do you think of when you hear the words, in the beginning was the word? If the words, Marley was dead to begin with, can call to mind a grouchy old man who learns lessons about Christmas charity and love, think about how much more we learn from the story behind, in the beginning was the word. It's easy for those who have known and read the Bible most of their lives to get bored with it. Sometimes books and poems written by great writers of mankind can seem far more engaging and captivating than the Bible's difficult passages. However, the Gospel of John is not just a book filled with factual, theological information. It is a passionate, poetic masterpiece filled with life-giving, spirit-breathed truth. And there isn't any greater place to see this than in John chapter 1. What we will take away from today's passage is that John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is not only an introduction to the rest of John's gospel. It is a beautiful, poetic plea to consider who Jesus is and receive him. As we consider this plea, we'll be looking at three things. First of all, the work of the word Second, the message concerning the word. And third, the mission of the word. However, this sermon is probably going to be different from any that you've heard before. Most pastors will begin a message at the beginning of the text and work their way from the beginning to the end. And now that only makes sense. Some might even start from the end of a text and work their way back to the beginning, but not today. Today we'll be coloring outside the lines a bit. We're going to be starting at the beginning and the end of this this text at the same time. From there, we're going to work our way to the middle. Now, this isn't some attempt to be clever or rebellious or something. All we're doing is looking at this passage as John intended it to be read and understood. John 1 verses 1 through 18 is poetry. It doesn't read exactly like a story or theological argument, even though it really is both of those as well. It can be kind of a confusing section of scripture if we don't understand how John is speaking. Part of the poetry of the passage is in how John arranges the argument. He uses a literary device known as a chiasm. Chiasms are named after the Greek letter chi or chi, which looks like the English letter X. In a chiasm, the author explains one concept and then another, focusing his argument down to one central point. From there, he reverses the order of his first concepts and goes through them again, explaining each one in more detail. The end result is an argument that looks like the letter X. Take John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 as an example. In verses 1 through 5, John describes Jesus with the Father in the past. In verses 6 through 9, he talks about John the Baptist as Jesus' messenger. In verses 10 through 14, John focuses on the rejection and the acceptance that Jesus faced. At verse 15, he goes back to talking about John the Baptist, but he describes more of his role in relationship to Jesus. And John finishes the big X by ending where he started. He describes Jesus with the Father again, but this time he focuses on what they were doing at that point in history. That is how we get the chiasm or the X. We begin and end with Jesus' work with the Father, and the focal point of the entire argument is the very center of the X. John wants us to to pay special attention 
to the middle of this great poem. We'll get there. But we need to look and we need to start at the outside of the poem. So let's look then at the work of the word. Let's look again at verses one through five. They say, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John's use of the chiasm isn't the only thing that makes this passage such wonderful poetry. The very first words John uses are powerful. What do you think Jewish people were thinking as they read these words for the very first time? In the beginning. They were waiting for, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, weren't they? John is loading the first three words of his gospel with the weight of nearly the entire Old Testament. We are sent back to the opening words of the entire Bible. In an instant, the mind flies over the landscape of biblical history, seeing the creation of the world, man's first sin, the promise of redemption, the flood, the calling and blessing of Abraham, the growth of a nation of God's people in Egypt, the incredible redemption of God's people from slavery through the Exodus, life under the judges and kings, good and bad, the rapid decline of Israel's spiritual life, the hope and judgment of the prophets, and the eventual exile from the promised land and return to Jerusalem, and through it all, the promise that a Savior would come to redeem God's people. All of these things are bound up in these three little words, in the beginning. But the sentence doesn't really continue the way we might expect it, does it? Instead of saying, in the beginning, God, it says, in the beginning was the word. Who is this word that thinks he can butt in where God should be? John's answer, the word is God. We know, looking at this verse from our perspective in history, that the word is Jesus Christ. But why does John call Jesus the word? He does this because he's writing poetry. He's not just naming Jesus. He is saying something about him. And just like the first three words of his book, the name word here is a link to the Old Testament. In a number of places, God's word is seen as the thing that carries out his desires. In a sense, it is God's action. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. This idea is seen in an even stronger sense, pointing forward to God's redemption in Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. When John refers to Jesus as the word, he is calling him the one who carries out the will of God, the father. And of course, John doesn't stop here. He equates Jesus with the father. He says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus existed before the world began. He was with God because he is God. He is not the Father, but he is, like the Father, God. 
but he was doing far more than simply existing with the Father. John goes on to explain that with the Father, Jesus created all things. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus gave life to mankind. He became their light, their hope. But the creation of the world wasn't the only work the word accomplished. Let's look at the other side of the X. In verses 16 through 18, John says, From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. These verses show Jesus' new work. In a very real sense, it's another beginning. The creation of the world started the first story. But the coming of the God of the universe into the world he created started the second, greater story, which John is about to tell. While the first story talked about the law given to Moses, this second story talks about how Jesus came to give grace so we can have eternal life, even though we can't obey the law on our own. While the first story, the Old Testament, spoke of a time when God had to hide Moses in a rock to shield him from the glory of his back, this new story speaks of the only begotten Son of God revealing not just the back, but the very face of God to all of his people. What John is saying is, the work of the word may have been incredible in the past, but just you wait and see what he is about to do. Well, now that we've looked at the outside of our X-shaped poem, the first and last verses of our text... Let's get a little bit closer to the center of things and look at the message concerning the word, the message concerning the word. After John introduces the word, the main character in his story, he describes another important character. Look with me at verses six through eight. John says, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Just in case you were a little nervous about giving the title of God to some random individual, John provides some evidence, a reference in fact, to prove that Jesus is who he is claiming to be. Any good Jewish person back in John's day would recognize the validity of the Old Testament prophecies. And the Old Testament clearly said, that God would send someone to prepare his people for the coming of his ultimate salvation. Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 3 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way. For the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Israel had waited for this messenger to come and declare God's salvation. When John appeared on the scene, people flocked to hear his message. His impact on the world was incredible. 
One of the greatest Christian teachers in the New Testament period was Apollos. He was a follower of John the Baptist who didn't hear about Jesus until Paul met him in Ephesus in Acts chapter 18. Jesus even declared, among those born of women, there is no, there's no one greater than John. So why then didn't people continue to follow John? Why does he seem to fall off of the religious map all of a sudden? We get our answer if we look at what uh, John, the author of the Gospel of John, says about him in the second half of this poem. While John may have been the greatest during the time of the first story, the Old Testament, a new story is beginning. And in this new story, the New Testament, the Word is supreme. In verse 15, the Apostle John says, John, speaking of John the Baptist, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John the Baptist understood his role. God called him to a specific task and he was faithful to it. His job was to prepare people for the coming of their savior and then point them to him. He was not to take the glory for himself. His job was that of the ultimate servant. He would get everyone's attention and then he would tell them to look elsewhere. When the time came, he submitted to God's plan and gave the reins of his ministry to Jesus. Even though Jesus was born on earth after him, John knew that Jesus existed long before he was born. John the Baptist knew Jesus was God. He serves as an example to all who would follow the Savior he went before. He gave proof to those who heard him that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was the word. He was God himself. Well, as we worked our way from the outside of this magnificent X-shaped poem toward the center, we've seen the work of the word and the message concerning the word. Let's look then at the very center of the X, the heart of this poem. Let's examine the mission of the word. One of the powerful themes of the gospel of John is the rejection that Jesus faced. John addresses this in verses 9 through 11, which say, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. After the incredible introduction that John the Baptist gave to Jesus, all of John's followers who were sent to Jesus, you would think that response to Jesus would be unanimous. This couldn't, though, be farther from the truth. In the Gospel of John alone, Jesus faces opposition when he clears the temple, when he heals a lame man on the Sabbath, when he called God his Father, when he told the crowds that he, they would have to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life, when he taught, when he called himself the light of the world, when he called himself I am, when he healed a blind man, when he said I and the Father are one, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he entered Jerusalem, and finally when he was arrested and crucified. And to make matters worse, the people who opposed him were the Jewish leaders. They were the most respected, godly people of the day. They, of all people, should have been following him, not challenging him. That's why John says, 
he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What is truly frightening to me about this verse is the fact that most folks listening to this, if asked, would probably call ourselves Jesus' own. I know I would. But when Jesus came, it was those who would have been considered his own who turned their backs on him. In fact, they worked against him. What was it that led these great pious men to turn their backs on their own master, their creator and Lord? How could men who spent so much time in God's word, the scriptures, completely miss the fact that the word of God, Jesus Christ, was standing right before them? How do we know we, in our attempts to do what is right, aren't harboring the same attitudes? The problem with the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the problem they encountered is that they had made God in their own image. They had decided how the Messiah would come. They felt they had God all figured out to the point that their own human pride was getting in the way of how they interpreted what they read in scripture and how they viewed Jesus. They rejected him because he wasn't who they expected him to be. What God are we looking for? Is it a God that we've conjured up in our heads and placed into the pages of our Bible? Or do we go to the Bible with open, humble hearts, praying that God will show us who he is through his word? Are we so arrogant to think that God looks and acts like we want him to? Or do we submit to our maker and worship him for who he truly is? Well, John doesn't leave us with a gloomy picture of rejection and opposition, though. In verses 12 through 14, he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the beautiful, passionate center of the entire book of John, the entire gospel of John. While there were some who rejected Jesus, God brought some to himself. Those who, in humility, understood who Jesus was and believed in him, were not only accepted by the Father, but made his very children. They were born again to new life in the family of God. This is the thesis for the rest of John's gospel. He clarifies this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The very word of God, Jesus Christ, creator of everything we can see, feel, hear, taste, touch, and everything we can't, became a lowly human being. He entered our sin-stained world. He made his dwelling among us. The Greek here literally translate, translates, he pitched his tent among us. 
Or to put it in today's language, he bought the house next door. He lived in our neighborhood, experienced our neighbors, our families, our friends. He lived in the midst of the daily trials and temptations. He experienced life just like we do. He worked hard and got sweaty and dirty. And here's the miracle. That face, even when it was sweaty and dirty, was the face of God. It was in seeing this face, whether walking down the road, glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, or covered in his own blood on the cross, that John was able to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. This truth should bring us to our knees. Sometimes we hear the story of Christ's incarnation so often at Christmas or other times that we miss how incredible it truly is. But remember, John isn't offering this truth so we can nod our heads in passive agreement and move on with our regular lives. This truth is meant to change us forever. John's cry, Jesus' cry, the cry of all of Scripture is that you would be amazed at what God has done for you and that you would believe. Believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Believe that your sins are forever taken away because of Jesus' work for you. Believe that you are accepted into his family as one of his very own children. And believe that you will one day be with him and see him, the Word, face to face. Imagine being able to say with the Apostle John, I have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. There are a lot of great opening lines out there. Some offer suspense, some humor, but none can offer the hope, the anticipation, or the beauty of in the beginning was the word. These opening paragraphs of John's gospel have served as a sort of outline for the rest of the book. We'll see these themes over and over again, but more importantly, they offer a poetic, passionate plea. Come to Jesus. See him. Believe in him. Love him. May God grant us grace to come before his word, before Jesus Christ, with humility and faith. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Gospel Uprising Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would be deeply honored if you would give us a four or five star rating and share our podcast with your friends and family. Your ratings help us get this gospel message out to more and more people so they can be changed by it as well. As always, for more gospel-soaked resources designed to help you know, love, and serve the revolutionary King, Jesus Christ, please visit our website, www.gospeluprising.com.